Hello, hello, hello. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to D&D Optimized, the show where each episode we take a deep dive into one specific character build for Dungeons & Dragons 5e, sometimes two, and we crunch numbers and we theorycraft on how to get the most out of that particular character build for the role we've decided to uh, give them in game. So if you, like me, enjoy theorycrafting characters and creating characters for D&D almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game, welcome home. This is a place for you, and I hope you enjoy being here. I certainly enjoy having you. My name's Colby, and uh, I'm your host, and, and welcome. So before we get into the build today, I have a bit of a preamble, as I often seem to. Um, this one might be a little longer than normal, so apologies in advance for those of you with um, little patience. Every episode, I get some constructive criticism along the lines of, you know, this build wouldn't work in game because X, or you focus on A at the expense of B, and therefore this build is bad, or something like that. First off, let me say, I appreciate the feedback. Um, I appreciate all feedback that that um, you guys want to throw my way. Um, but let me maybe emphasize something that I maybe haven't done a very good job of emphasizing thus far. And that is to say, you know, the the intent for me with this channel is is never to say, here's a character build, this is the best way to do this particular character, and if you do it any other way, you're wrong. Right? That's lame. And frankly, I think that's why a lot of people who like to talk about character optimization maybe get a bad rap from the rest of the D&D community, because sometimes we have an attitude that's like that, right? Um, I think that's lame. I think you should play your character however you want to play it in whatever way seems the most fun and rewarding and fulfilling for you. Um, and so really my intent is to explore the limits of what's possible, I guess from a numbers perspective anyway. Um, you know, to, to crunch numbers, yes, but find cool synergies between subclasses and spells and feats and equipment and things um, and races and crunch the numbers on how combining all of those things together could theoretically impact a character. And then compare those sort of theoretical builds that, that I've come up with or that we've come up with or someone else has come up with for that matter to other episodes that I've done and just kind of see how they compare depending on enemy armor class, depending on character level, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, not all of them are going to be super practical in game, right? And, and should be potentially tweaked accordingly. Um, the armorer build that I did at one point I think was fairly reliably running around with like a 33 armor class or something like that. In game, depending on what you're fighting, that's a little silly. You know, you don't, it, it, it's, it would be rare that you would need a 33 armor class, right? Um, in order to sort of be very tanky. Um, you know, the, 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 Sorcerer with the Magic Touch episode that I did last week, one commenter said something along the lines of, and, and I'm not trying to call anybody out or bully, 
but they, they made a comment that was something like, this build would be boring to me, you know, always just casting the same shocking grasps, grasp spell in turn over and over. Um, and what would you do if there were a bunch of flying enemies? You wouldn't be able to do anything, and so, like, I'm disappointed with the build. Fair criticism, and totally fine and valid, right? My, my response, of course, would just be, you know, if this seems boring to you, then you should absolutely not create your character this way. Um, and, you know, of course, I think you could probably make the same criticism of a lot of different martial builds, but that's me. Um, and, you know, and I guess my other response would be if you have a DM that when they see a build like this is constantly only throwing flying creatures at you, then your DM is unusually cruel. But regardless, um, you know, if, if it's not interesting or fun, then you should by no means try to recreate something like that in-game, right? Um, the grappler monk that I did a couple of weeks ago did crazy damage. But in the context of an actual campaign, right, it probably wasn't super practical for most tables. Um, hopefully, we can enjoy the exploration of the possible um, and then take those concepts to our own characters, uh, tweaking them in a way, you know, here and there to try and take advantage of you know, the synergies that you liked best um, with a particular build, and, and then tweaking them and making them your own, altering them, altering them in a way that's more fun, interesting, or practical for you. Um, so that leads us, and, and the reason for that sort of preamble really is because it leads us very well into the episode that I'm doing today. Uh, episode 25, the Mounted Battlesmith Artificer. Um, this is a super fun, I think, character concept um, that you may or may not be able to make work exactly as I lay out in the build for, not, for a couple of reasons. One, you just may not want to. You may not um, find it super practical. Your dungeon master might take issue with one thing or another in the build, right? Um, and, and of course, you could say that about any episode that I've done thus far. I think this one might be a little more susceptible than some to sort of that caveat. Um, and that's totally okay. Mounted combat in D&D 5e is rife with problems, in my opinion. So much so that I did an entire sliding into my DMs episode on it last week to kind of talk with my dungeon masters about all of the questions that I have about how mounted, mounted combat works in D&D. And, and at the end of an hour-long conversation, it was actually an hour and a half, I, I cut out about 30 minutes or 20 minutes worth of content, um, there were still some questions that were unanswered or you know, one DM felt one way and another felt another way. Um, I, I would strongly, strongly encourage all of you, if, if you're interested in this build, to watch that sliding into my DMs, it was number six, I think, um, episode on mounted combat. Not just because I want more views, which, okay, fine, I do, but honestly, the, the main reason is because mounted combat does leave a lot of questions, rules as written in the book, and I think 
if you're going to try and create a character like I'm about to outline today, it's going to be important to know, you know, what questions you're going to need to discuss with your dungeon master before the campaign even starts, before you even create the character. To, to make sure that you're on the same page as far as what combat's going to look like for you. You know, are you going to treat my companion as a mount or as a companion or as both? And what's that going to look like? Are there going to be scenarios that you're not going to let me be mounted in combat, whether it's because of the environment that you're in or some other, you know, factor, etc. So make sure you familiarize yourself with all of sort of those questions that, that you and or your dungeon master might have when it comes to mounted combat before you attempt to, to do a build like this or, or any mounted combat build, I guess would be my advice. Um, there, there are, like I say, a, a ton of challenges with it. And so I don't want to spend too much time in this episode digging really deep into the minutiae and the questions of how mounted combat works, because I feel like I've sort of already done that. Um, so I'm assuming that you have a pretty good working knowledge of, you know, the rules surrounding mounted combat for D&D 5e. As we go in, I'll, I'll probably pause in a couple of places to sort of dig in a little bit. Um, now, as far as this build goes, part of me really wanted to do kind of a tankier, cavalier build, maybe mixed with some paladin. Um, for fine steed and other nice paladin benefits. Um, I haven't done as many tank builds as most of you know as as I have damage focused builds, right? Um, and personally for sort of flavor and what I think I might like to play in game more that tanky cavalier paladin appeals to me a little more but I decided to go with the with the battlesmith artificer um, for a couple of reasons. One the the can you do a small player character riding on their companion their medium-sized companion as a mount um, build is by far my number one most requested build that I've had from at least from my YouTube viewers and actually even email and um, social media posts you know people making requests and so I want to cater to my audience right um, but also, um, when I, when I do, and I think I will at some point, when I do that tanky cavalier paladin build, I, I personally want it to be the knight in shining armor, uh, rider of Rohan kind of archetype, um, because it sounds fun and cool to me. And... To me, I would want then to be a medium player character on a large mount, like a warhorse or something like that. And when you when you put all of your eggs into one basket like that, into the sort of this mount, you know, really being able to take advantage of mounted combat in that way, um, there are so many moments in most D and D campaigns where you would have a difficult time being a medium player character on a large, you know, warhorse or something like that, when you're inside buildings, when you're in a lot of dungeons, um, it would be difficult to take advantage. And so I think t to really get the most out of a character built like that, you would probably want to play a campaign that was sort of maybe tweaked or tailored specifically for you to be able to take advantage of that. And and so I feel like that's that would potentially have 
less interest from my audience because it's a very sort of niche um, campaign, a very sort of niche build that a lot of people might not be able to practically um, use in most of their D&D campaigns. And so, and, and I want to cater to as large an audience as possible, right? And and kind of do stuff that you guys are, are interested in or would find sort of useful and usable in-game. Um, and so, for that reason, I'm going small player character, medium mount, because I think that um, most DMs would sort of allow that to happen in most combat situations. Um, and so I think there's just a little more sort of practical application um, for a build like this. Yes, I know you could do a tanky cavalier that was small on a, on a mastiff, you know, on a medium-sized mount or something like that, but that's just not how I would want to build that character, personally. So anyway, um, and, and, and the request, the, the, when I get the request, hey, I want a small player character on a medium-sized mount, it's usually doing lots of damage and, you know, built in these certain ways. And so, again, trying to, um, trying to finally, 25 episodes in, um, fulfill that very common request that I get. Um, so, I'm almost done with the preamble. Um, if we decide to go with the small player character on a medium companion mount, we, we essentially have two options. Right. Um, there is the Beastmaster, Ranger, and there is the Battlesmith, Artificer. Um, the, the primary reason for taking either of those uh, in this scenario is, I think, just for the sort of free and easy access to that medium-sized companion that's going to fulfill all of the requirements, I think, for, for most Dungeon Masters anyway, of what could constitute a mount in a controlled mount. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of requirements. It has to be one size bigger than you. It has to be sort of trained to take a rider. It has to be, you know, willing, all of these things. And while, yes, anybody could theoretically go into Waterdeep or, you know, the nearest town and go to the go to a pet store and buy yourself a wolf or a mastiff or something like that and train it so that you could ride it as a mount, um, I think I have to assume that many or most DMs might say, eh, you could potentially train it as a mount, but it might be hard to find one that's already trained. So therefore it's gonna require some work on your part as a player and or they just might not really be open to it in the first place. But I think as a, as a Beastmaster or as a Battlesmith, it's pretty easy to say, you know, this is my companion, they are faithful to me, they are loyal to me, they're going to obey my commands, they're going to be okay with me riding them as a mount. You know, I have trained them to do this, etc. And I think it's it's much, I, I can make the assumption, I can fairly safely make the assumption that most DMs would be okay with this, right? Um, so that's why I think we probably need to go one of these two subclasses if we're gonna go this route with mounted combat. Um, the reason why I want to go Battlesmith as opposed to Beastmaster is twofold. One, um, I really love the, well, I feel like the, the um, Steel Defender that Battlesmiths get is a little easier to keep alive than the Beastmaster's companion. Um, and I love the very powerful uh, reaction and free reaction that the Steel Defender gets 
over the the Beastmaster's companion. Um, and and actually three. I've already done two full episodes on a Beastmaster, and I've never yet done a um, a Battlesmith uh, build, and I get a lot of people requesting one. Um, and so for all those reasons, we're going to go with the Battlesmith. The Ranger Beastmaster has a lot of advantages. There's some neat things. They have a D10 hit die, so they're a little tankier. Arguably, they have more utility. Um, they might even get more damage if you throw in, um, you know, some of their spells and things like that. But, um, and, well, and so the Beastmaster Ranger is totally viable. And if you prefer that route, you could definitely apply a lot of the things that we're going to talk about here to that build and make it work. Um, but for the purposes of the build today, we're going Artificer, we're going Battlesmith, and finally, let's jump into the build. All right, at level one, we're actually starting off as a fighter. <laughs> so a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, we get heavy armor proficiency and we get to start with heavy armor, which is fantastic for us. More AC is happiness. Um, and we get a fighting style that's going to be important for this build, the two weapon fighting style in particular. Um, which gives us, so as most of you know, um, when, you two when you do two weapon fighting, you can have a weapon in each hand, but they have to be light, right, um, for now. And when you, when you make the attack action with one, then you can make a, a bonus action attack with your other hand, as long as they're both light weapons. And normally, you don't get to add your um, strength or dexterity modifier to the damage of that second attack. But if you take the two-weapon fighting style, you can. So it's going to be an important damage increase for this build. Um, so those are the main reasons we're going fighter. And we get to start with, a, with, with 10 hit points plus our constitution modifier, which is nice. Um, for the race, we're going to go custom lineage. Custom lineage, um, at the new as per Tasha's, right? It lets you choose your size, whether you're medium or small. So make sure that you pick small and we get a plus two to a stat of our choice. We're gonna put that into strength and we get a free feat, um, which is gonna be very important for this build. And we're gonna, well, we're gonna take the piercer feat. We need two, we, we want to, but um, one's more important than the other. But for now, piercer is, is, is better off for us. Piercer is also a new feat as per Tasha's and um, it gives us a number of advantages when we do piercing damage, it treats any ones rolled from weapon damage as a two. So it's a little damage increase. Also, if we get a critical hit, then it, um, it lets us add another die of damage. And so instead of rolling two die, you roll three. It's kind of like a uh, brutal critical from you know the barbarians. Um, so that's some nice extra damage when we do crit. And also, very importantly, it lets us add a plus one to our strength or our dexterity. And so, since we started with a plus two to dex, now we'll have a plus three to dex, which is great. There are other racial options here, right? Any race that's small will work. Um, initially, my plan was to go kobold here, because kobolds get a really cool feature um, called pack tactics, I think that basically says that whenever a companion of yours is within five feet of an enemy that you're attacking, 
you have advantage on that attack. And since we're going to be mounted on a companion, uh, you know, on an ally, we would theor theoretically almost always have advantage on our attacks. However, with this build, we're actually going to be using later on um, lances as our main weapon. And for those who don't know, lances give you disadvantage if you're making an attack against an enemy within five feet. And so, you know, if you had to get up close for your companion, your mount to be within five feet, and for you to um, to make that attack with advantage, you would have disadvantage because you're using a lance, and so the advantage and disadvantage would cancel each other out, and you would get no benefit. It's still very viable if you think you could manage to always sort of attack an enemy um, that's standing next to another one of your companions, and so definitely worth considering if you want to go that route. It, it ends up being a nice damage bump for us, especially at mid and higher enemy armor classes. Um, we'd miss out on the free feet, but in the long run, you're better off if you can get advantage on every attack, right? So consider that. It's worth, it's worth taking into consideration. And if you do go kobold, and you do reliably get to make attacks against an enemy that's standing within five feet of one of your allies, You'll have advantage and it will be great. Of course, goblins work, halflings, gnomes, you know, they all have um, different perks that are worth taking a look at. We're going custom lineage. Um, so, we need to talk about abilities. Uh, I'm assuming, as always, that you're taking the um, point buy system for your abilities. We're going to buy a 15 strength, plus 2, plus 1, so 18 total, right? Um, Make sure you get a 14 constitution if you can, because everybody likes hit points. And a 14 intelligence, because artificers need a good intelligence score. Um, and then the rest where you see fit. As for equipment, um, I'm going to recommend that you do a gold buy option, which again lets you roll dice, and then times 10 you get that much gold that should be enough, unless you roll really terribly, um, to let you purchase some chainmail. Um, which is, you know, pretty good, uh, pretty good starting heavy armor. Um, two lances, they're 10 gold apiece. You can't use them yet, or at least you're not going to be using them yet. Not until level five even, so don't ask me where you're going to stick them. Because these things are like twice as big as you. <laughs> if you're just trying to stash them on your back, you're not going to be able to walk. Get your tall friend to carry them for you. Um, but anyway, uh, get a couple of short swords. You're going to be using short swords for the first few levels. Those do piercing damage, and they're light, so you can dual, dual wield them. Um, you also need artisan's tools of some kind. They're necessary for artificer spells, and they range from 1 to 50 gold pieces in cost, so find what works, what works best for your character and your budget. And anything else you feel that you might need that you can afford clothes, etc. Um, as a fighter, level 1, you get a fighting style. I already mentioned it. You're going to take the two-up in fighting uh, style, which is great for us. And that's pretty much it for level 1. Alright, at level 2, it started snowing outside. It's getting dark in here suddenly. Maybe I should turn on a light, but I hate the way fluorescent lights look. Anyway, I think we'll be alright. At level 2, you are an Artificer 1, so here we go with our Artificer, artificer levels. Um, artificers at level one get some cool features. 
Um, you get a feature called Magical Tinkering, which lets you create some cool, flavorful, fun utility type stuff that we're not going to get into. Um, and you get some spells. So for cantrips, make sure that you get mending. This is very important. Um, you're going to be using this uh, a lot. And also um, Firebolt or something like it just to do damage from ranged when you need it early on like this. Your intelligence modifier isn't great, so it's not going to be super fantastic, but in a pinch, it'll be good to have. Um, other first level spell options to consider, I, I really like um, the spell Long Strider. Uh, it doesn't require concentration, it lasts for a full hour and it gives an extra 10 feet of movement speed to you or one of your allies. I'm assuming you know you'd be casting it on your on your companion on your steel defender later, um, and since you're going to be mounted on them, riding them into battle, an extra ten feet of movement speed for them uh, will be great. Um, but uh, you know, otherwise, I would I would just encourage you, as a general rule, with this build, to focus on spells that are sort of out of combat, you know, ritual spells or buffs. You know, cure wounds is something you get access to. That's nice. Um, detect magic, identif identify, purify food and drink, things like that. You're not going to be, at least I wouldn't recommend, you may decide otherwise, but I don't think you're going to be casting a lot of spells in combat for a couple of different reasons, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, so anyway, look for those kind of utility buff sort of between combat spells. Um, at level three, you are an artificer too, and you get your infusions. So infusions are really cool, unique to the artificer, um, and it lets you basically tinker or, or, or sort of make a mundane non-magical item magical, right? Um, you get two at this level, and you can't, there, there are some restrictions. You can't use the same infusion on multiple items, and a single item can't hold more than one infusion. Um, so there's a bunch of different cool ones. Um, Personally, of course, I'm going to recommend that you take Enhanced Weapon, which makes one of your weapons a plus one magical weapon, um, and Enhanced Defense, which lets you make your armor um, a plus one, gives your armor a plus one to AC. I like numbers, what can I say? Um, you can do other things that you might like more. You can create magic items, and at this level you can create a bag of holding which would be a great to have, especially because you got these like 10 foot lances that I don't know what where you're stashing them. You can put them in your bag of holding. Um, anyway, moving on to level four, you are an artificer level three, and you get to choose your artificer, artificer wow, I'm gonna do that a lot today, aren't I? Artificer specialist. Um, we're taking Battlesmith, of course. Uh, it's the main reason we're here. now. There are some cool features that Battlesmiths get, some of which we don't necessarily get a lot out of. For example, um, Battle Ready. Battle Ready is really cool. Um, it lets you potentially use your intelligence as um, your attack stat, essentially, your plus to hit and plus to damage, if you're attacking with magical weapons. Our weapons aren't always necessarily going to be magical, at least not yet. Um, and so that's kind of tough to pigeonhole yourself in that way. Um, and we, and we really want strength or, well, we need strength or dex at least to, to multi-class into fighter. And we want at least a strength 15 for heavy armor so that we don't suffer a movement penalty. Um, 
thanks to the YouTube viewer who pointed that out. I can't remember the name off the top of my head right now. Um, but yeah, you can always, if you're proficient in heavy armor, you can wear whatever heavy armor you want, even if you don't have the strength requirement, it just impacts your move speed. But we don't want to impact our move speed by 10, that would be sad. Even though we'll be mounted all the time, so it wouldn't hurt that much. But again, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for us to want strength anyway. So um, we're not going to get a lot out of battle ready. You do get some additional spells as a battlesmith that other artificers don't get, which are nice. Heroism is one at this level, um, which it requires concentration, um, and it lasts for a minute, and it gives you or an ally temporary hit points each round, which is nice. You could cast it on your steel defender, which we'll talk about in a second. Two, um, which would be a nice way to kind of help them stay alive. Um, you also get sh the shield spell, which as most of you know, is one of my favorites, right? I love shield. Um, there's a problem, however, with shield. Again, shield um, lets you as a reaction um, cast a spell when you get hit by an attack that increases your armor class by five until the beginning of your next turn, potentially causing that attack and, and subsequent attacks for that matter to miss. Um, it's great, but... We're dual wielding, right? And shield has a somatic component, meaning you need a free hand in order to sort of, you know, cast signs in the air to, to cast that shield spell. Normally I say, well, okay, you either take Warcaster, which lets you, the Warcaster feat, which lets you, you know, cast somatic components, even if your hands are full, um, or you drop a weapon cast your reaction and maybe on your next turn you pick it back up. I think that's going to be a little difficult to manage because we're going to be on the back of a mount a lot of the time. And even though it's only a medium mount, I think a lot of DMs would be like, eh, you know, you're going to have to get off your mount if you want to scoop that weapon back up. And it's just, it gets a little messy. So, um, I'm, I'm probably going to recommend that this is one of the, this is really the main reason why I'm saying like, you're probably not going to be using a lot of spells that, you know, are sort of in combat type spells. Um, so anyway, keep that in mind. Um, again, you could get Warcaster, but we really need another feat that I'll talk about next level first. And so Warcaster isn't going to come until later. So anyway, if you want to be a, a more caster focused and or tanky, focused um, character by all means take shield and other spells but for us we're going to generally not be using them um, the main reason of course that we went with the battlesmith is for our steel defender so this is a companion that you have created um, with your tinkering skills it's friendly to you and to your allies and it obeys you i'm pretty sure that like i mentioned in my preamble right as long as you create this steel defender with an appropriate anatomy, it will qualify in all ways um, to be considered a controlled mount as per the mounted combat rules. Again, please read up on them. Um, you know, it's, it's trained, that's a requirement. For all intents and purposes, I mean, you created the thing yourself. After all, I would think that most DMs would be like, yeah, it's your construct, right? You've created it, it's trained to do what you want it to do. Um, it's one size larger than you. That's a requirement. Um, so when when a mount is controlled by you, meets those requirements, um, it means that it matches your initiative, and it can it will move as you direct it on your turn, right? And 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 it has forty feet of move speed, which is nice. 
Um, and then it has only three options to take as an action. It can dash for double move speed. It can disengage so that it doesn't take an opportunity attack. Uh, or it can take the dodge action, um, which means that enemies have disadvantage when they make attacks against it. Now, if you watched the um, sliding into my DMs episode that I referenced earlier, right, number six, you know we get really deep into the weeds of trying to decide if your companion in this case would would also be allowed to act independently instead of act as a controlled mount. That's going to be up to your DM. You might not even want it to, even if it could, right? But when a mount acts independently, it means that it's in, that that it essentially your DM has the ability anyway to sort of take control of your mount and decide what it does on its turn. And it can, in that case, if your DM allows it, also make attacks on its turn. And your and your steel defender does get an attack. It's just a, it's a D8 plus your proficiency bonus. It's not a ton of damage, but it's nice. The problem is at that point it does not match your initiative. It rolls its own initiative. And so it may move um, you may be a little out of sync, I guess. You might get a little more damage out of it, but best case scenario, even if your dungeon master says, okay, fine, I'll let it be independent, and you know what, I'll let you decide what you want it to do, which some DMs may do. I can't know for sure if they will, which is why I'm not gonna include the mount's damage when I calculate, you know, when I do damage report numbers. Um, but best case scenario, it's you're going to be out of sync, right? It's going to move not on your turn, which is going to just get a little weird. And so for, so for sort of all of those reasons, I can't know for sure what your DM will allow. I can feel relatively confident that your DM will be okay with you treating your Steel Defender as a controlled mount at the very least. Um, the, there is one remaining question that some may have, and, and sometimes I see people that do builds like this, whether it's an, a battlesmith or a beastmaster, and they say, this is great, they're your mount, you ride into combat, you take all of your actions, and then, in, in our case, as a, as a battlesmith, you can, as a bonus action, command your steel defender to take an attack. So, you know, I sort of have this question of, well, if it's a mount, is it a mount or is it your Steel Defender Companion? I think a lot of people would probably be okay with treating it as a Steel Defender Companion. However, I don't want to use my bonus action to make my Steel Defender make an attack. I get more damage out of my own bonus action. So I'm totally okay with just treating this as a controlled mount if that's all we get. If your Dungeon Master will allow it to be an independent mount and still let you decide what it does on its turn, they might not do that, then you could potentially get more damage out of it, but at the cost of being out of sync on your movement, right? So I hope that all makes sense. Let me know if you have questions or you know, let's discuss in the comments or on the subreddit or whatever, right? But anyway, I'm going to assume that you're, tre you're treating it as a controlled mount, allowing you additional move speed, potentially a dash f from them, right? And still letting you take your actions and bonus actions as normal, or even a disengage if you need to get away from enemies, things like that. Um, okay, Steel Defender, it's fantastic. It has a 15 armor class, not fabulous, um, but it's not horrible. It, it has 
two hit points plus your intelligence mod, which for us is just a plus two, so four, plus five times your artificer level. So right now that's a 19, that's 19 hit points total. Not amazing, um, but we'll remedy that. It will scale as we take levels in artificer. Um, it has a speed of 40 feet, like I mentioned. It's immune to poison, it's immune to charm, it's immune to exhaustion, it can't be surprised. Um, and it can speak your language. So lots of great bonuses and benefits that we get uh, out of having this Steel Defender as our mount. Um, it has an attack that we're probably not going to be getting, or at least I'm going to assume we're not. Um, it, uh, one awesome thing about it that I mentioned earlier, it can be easily healed. So three times a day, it can heal itself as an action. Um, it's functioning as a controlled mount, so it and that action is not listed among the actions it can take when you are riding it. So technically, it can't do that in combat unless you get off, right? Um, but you could do that in a pinch. Um, but also, uh, it can be healed by a cast of the Mending spell. And it will heal it. A Mending spell will heal it for 2d6 of, of hit points, which is great because Mending is a cantrip, so free unlimited healing, right? Of course, mending requires an action on our part, and we have our hands full, as I've talked about, and mending has both a somatic and a material component, which means we need a free hand to use our tinkering tools, our, our artificer tools, to cast the spell. So, going to be a little difficult to swing in combat, but maybe you can stow your weapon before you cast that, if you really need to in a pinch, to heal your steel defender, and of course, in between combat, you can heal it to full essentially with unlimited castings of the mending spell right again because it's a cantrip so work that out with your dm make sure that you're clear on how this is going to work for you if you want to try and do this in combat have a plan but know you've got some great uh, healing options for your steel defender um, most importantly in my opinion and the thing that really makes the steel defender shine is it has an amazing reaction ability called uh, deflect attack. Um, so when when a creature within five feet of it makes an attack roll, um, so when an enemy makes an, is within five feet of your steel defender and makes an attack roll against anybody else other than the steel defender, the steel defender can take the reaction to impose disadvantage on that attack. So in other words, Right. If, if somebody charges you and tries to hit you, the Steel Defender can impose disadvantage on that attack, which is great. It's going to increase your survivability. And later on, we're really going to find some nice synergies there and even get some additional damage out of it. Um, so, your mount is a little squishy. So, generally speaking, you're going to want to avoid being in combat range, I think. Um, but the nice thing is that you can run into combat make your attacks, and then have your mount disengage and run out, uh, keeping you both a little bit safer. Um, you can bring bring your Steel Defender back to life if it dies um, with just a first-level spell slot, uh, as long as it, you cast it within an hour of its death. Um, or after a long rest, worst-case scenario, you're out of spell slots at the end of a long rest, you can re resurrect it, essentially. Um, which is great, but getting your Steel Defender killed while you're in the middle of combat is really going to cramp our style and especially our damage per round. 
at the next level. So let's talk about that. Level five. You are an artificer, level four. And this is where it all comes together. So you get a feat or an ability score increase, and we're going to take the dual wielder feat. As you probably know, dual wielder gives you, when you're using two weapons, you know, one in each hand, it gives you a plus one to your armor class. Fantastic. So now with our with our infusion, we're at an 18 armor class, even if we just have chain mail, and you might have splint mail or even plate by now. So your armor class is pretty good. Um, and more importantly, you can use two-weapon fighting even when the one-handed melee weapons you're wielding aren't light. So it's time to ditch the short swords and pull out those lances. Now, let's talk about lances. I've never done a build with them before, and they're a little funky, but they're, they're pretty cool. So lance, think of it as just a big long spear, essentially, or like a jousting um, lance or something, right? So it is a special weapon. It does 1d12 of piercing damage. Um, it has reach, so you can make your attacks from 10 feet instead of 5. But it also imposes disadvantage if you're attacking an enemy within 5 feet. So you really want to make those attacks from 10 feet away, right? And this was, like I said, why we didn't want, why, why it didn't make a lot of sense for us to go kobold, because generally speaking, you are not going to be within, nor your mount, for that matter, because you're riding on top of it, are going to be within five feet, and thereby not going to get that guaranteed advantage unless you have another friend that, that is within five feet, right? Um, here's the thing about lances. If you're not mounted, they are a two-handed weapon. Meaning, I think we can all safely assume, some may argue this is theoretical, um, optimization, but anyway, if you are mounted, they're a one-handed weapon, right? That, that seems a little odd, I know, but rules as written, this should work. Your dungeon master may think that a three-foot-tall player riding on a medium-sized mechanical construct with two, like, 10 foot long lances riding into combat is just so awesome that they can't handle it. And so they won't allow it because it's just too awesome. But you've got fantastic backing that this works rules as written. If your dungeon master still doesn't want to let you do it, don't be that person that whines and complains. Find, find a solution, throw on a shield, whatever. Um, use rapiers instead of short swords, I don't know. But anyway, this is the only two-weapon fighting style build, as far as I know, that that gets to do two-weapon fighting with D12 weapons. And that, in and of itself, is super fantastic. Um, you kind of had to tweak some things and work it to get there, and you've only and you can only do it again while mounted. If you get knocked out, knocked out. If your mount gets knocked out from under you, if it dies, you're going to need a backup plan. So maybe keep a couple of rapiers on hand, right? Because um, or no, they don't have to be rapiers. Sorry, uh, long swords would be fine. You're a strength-based character. Um, oh, but they do piercing damage. So never mind. Do rapiers um, because we have the piercer feet. Anyway. Um, right, so 
so the idea here, obviously, just to kind of sum it all up, right? You've got two lances, one in each hand. You're mounted on your mechanical construct. On your turn, you are charging into combat, stopping when you're 10 feet away from your opponent or opponents, making your attacks, and then probably running away a little bit more. Hopefully you've still got some move speed. Maybe you can have your mount take the dash action if you need to get away. And so it really has a cool kind of, um, I don't know, like a, like a knight in a, in a actual jousting competition or something. You're running in, you're making your attacks, you're running back out, you're running in. So you're really kind of in and out of combat every turn, making those attacks from reach. And so most opponents shouldn't be able to you know, take opportunity attacks on you when you're when you run away, unless they also have reach. In which case, your mount can take the disengage action, and you're still not getting hit. Let me talk about that actually. So, according to a tweet from Jeremy Crawford, anyway, you can look it up. And I know not everything he says is necessarily, you know, uh, you don't have to abide by his suggestions, but. His claim is that if you are mounted and your mount does not impose opportunity attacks, then you also don't impose, you, you, they can't make opportunity attacks against you if they can't make opportunity attacks against your mount. That's his intention anyway. The idea is that if your mount takes disengage, neither of you should be able to provoke opportunity attacks. And you'll need to do this fairly regularly because even if you're 10 or 20 or 30 feet away from an enemy, they could run up, you know, to within range of you and make attacks on their turn. And so then on your turn, you would want to have your mount disengage, back up five feet, right? Make your attack so you're not, you're not making them with disadvantage because you're using lances. Um, and then, you know, use the rest of your mount's movement to get away from them. So you're very, um, very much sort of this light cavalry kind of feel. You're strafing, you're... You're, you know, you're circling the battlefield, you're dashing in, making your attacks, dashing back out and looking, you know, for the next one to, uh, to make a charge attack against. And it's really cool. And it's, and it's pretty strong. Um, all right. At level six, we are an Artificer 5 and we get extra attack. So now we are getting three Lance attacks every turn, right? Two from extra attack. And those, by the way, are made with a plus one. That's our main hand. And we cast enhanced weapon on that one, right? So we're getting two attacks with a plus one, doing a d12 of damage, plus one, plus four for our strength modifier. And then, you know, our offhand bonus action attack um, with, uh, with, you know, thanks to the dual wielder feat that we took, we can do that. And um, again, a d12 plus our strength modifier because we have two weapon fighting. Um, we also, at a level 5 Artificer, get second level spells. Um, Battlesmiths get uh, two that other Artificers don't. Branding Smite um, requires concentration, and it's, it only has a verbal component, and it's cast as a bonus action, but it just does an extra 2d6 of damage on your next hit, and, it, and then it's done, right? And so it's nice because it's a verbal component. You could theoretically, you know, cast it and then hit and do an extra 2d6 of damage. But since it takes a bonus action, not to mention a spell slot, you'd actually get more damage out of just making an attack with your bonus action because you get to add your strength modifier. Um, however, it does cause 
enemies that could potentially go invisible to not be able to go invisible. You, you, can, you can see them, essentially, um, when you hit them with Branding Smite. So against enemies that can go invisible, use it. Otherwise, I'd say don't worry about it. Um, you also get... Um, blah, 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 sorry. Warding Bond. Sorry. Warding Bond is great. Um, it lasts for an hour. It does not require concentration, and you essentially cast it with on an ally and then it gives that ally you know I'm, I'm assuming you'd probably cast this on your on your steel defender but you could cast it on somebody else it gives them a plus one to armor class um, and resistance to all damage but any damage that it takes you take the same amount so it has resistance meaning takes half but then you take that same amount of damage so you're basically just splitting the damage between the two of you great way to you know help keep your steel defender and mount alive in combat um, so that's great there are other cool second level spells that artificers get and you should totally look at them and take the ones that you like best so damage report level six against an enemy with a 10 armor class on average you will be doing 35 damage per round and against an enemy with a 15 armor class on average you're doing 25 damage per round that's nice it's not amazing it's not incredibly overpowered and so i think for that reason you you might have sort of you know room to make the argument with your dm that you should have your companion your mount your steel defender be allowed to act independently and thereby you know get to take potentially an attack action on its turn uh, as well as move you around again I can't assume that they will say yes to that, and even if they did, you might not want them to because it might be more important that your movement be synchronized so you can be running in, making your attacks, and running out. All right, from here, we have a decision to make. Um, two paths diverge in a yellow wood, and we need to decide, are we wanting to be more of a team player and um, debuff our allies and do cool things um, and sort of emphasize our mounted combat expertise a little more or um, do we want more damage? I wonder which way Colby's gonna go. So here's the thing, <laughs> again, if you wanna be more of a team player and you wanna be a little more tanky and help your allies not get a hit as much and things, Go, go with some Cavalier, go into Cavalier, go back into Fighter, couple levels at least, we already have one, right? Pick up Cavalier and it lets you do some cool things. I've mentioned it already, I'm not focusing on that for this particular build, I might do it later. So we're gonna stick with Artificer, um, which is going to give us uh, more damage and some other cool things and utility as well. So at level seven, we are an Artificer six, and um, you get a feature called Tool Expertise, which lets you double your proficiency bonus for any ability checks made with a tool. That's it, really? Where's the damage? We do get one more infusion, so instead of two, now we get three, and that's nice. And, and we get access to, among other things, a, a, an infusion that's only available until level six, Artificer, uh, Radiant Weapon which is both a plus one weapon and 
you can make it shed bright light, bright light, um, and it has a one it has one d four charges per day, which lets you when you make a hit also try to blind the target that you hit with this weapon. Um, and again, if they're blinded, they have disadvantage on attack rolls, and everyone else has advantage on attack rolls against them. So super awesome. Um, they do get to make a con save, and it only lasts until their next turn. They're to the end of their next turn. So it's strong, it's very nice. Um, and now we have a plus one magic weapon in each hand. Happy days. And for that reason, if you are going to start this character at level seven or later, I would say go ahead and um, make strength like a dump stat or maybe just a 13 at least because you need that for a fighter but you could go dex instead right but anyway um, and then just go intelligence all the way because again you can use as long as you're using magic weapons intelligence for your attack um, modifier to hit to damage so that could be nice because obviously our spells and some other artificer abilities are dependent upon intelligence and, and having just one stat to worry about is really cool for that reason. Um, at level 8, you are an Artificer 7. You get a feature called Flash of Genius. Um, when you or an ally within 30 feet of you make an ability check or a saving throw, you get to, as a reaction, add your intelligence modifier to that roll. It's only a plus 2 for us right now, unless we do what I just barely talked about. Um, but hey, it's a nice little utility. You can help people out in a pinch or yourself for that matter or your mount for that matter um, you can only do it twice a day because it's your intelligence modifier times per day uh, which is kind of a bummer but hey it's something um, at level nine you are an artificer eight and you get another feat or ability score increase now you could make the argument that you should take the mounted combatant feat here We'll get into that later. I'm not going to take it yet, just because of the way that we're playing this character. I, I think it's not as important, but um, you can decide otherwise. Um, I'm just going to say, go ahead and take a strength bump here to give you a plus two to your strength, thereby capping it at 20, which is fantastic. Um, one note, I just realized... I, um, I, I misspoke when I mentioned the piercer feat. It doesn't let you treat ones as twos. I talked That was the elemental affinity or whatever feat that I talked about in last week's build. This just lets you once per turn re-roll the die for damage when you hit with piercing damage. Um, it's better, in other words. It's still not as good as like the great weapon fighting style, which just lets you re-roll ones and twos. Um, but it's, you know, on average should lead to a little more damage, so that's nice. Anyway, sorry about that mistake. Um, so, level 9, damage report. Uh, we are doing against an enemy with 10 armor class, 38 damage per round, and against a 16 armor class, 30 damage per round. That's not very good. Compared to other builds that I've done, it's not fantastic. Um, but it is fun, and it is cool, and it's even kind of funny, in my opinion. Um, and you're enjoying it. So at the end of the day, that's all that matters, right? And it, you know what? It's about to get a lot better. So bear with me.
All right, at level 10, you are an Artificer 9, and you get a feature called Arcane Jolt. Um, you get to do it, your intelligence modifier, number of times per day. Um, once per turn, when you hit a creature with a magic weapon attack, and both of our weapons are magical now, um, it takes an extra 2d6 of force damage. Great. Um, nice little nice little damage bump. Or, instead, when we hit a creature with a magical weapon attack, it can arc a beam of healing to an ally within 30 feet, potentially you or your companion, right, um, for 2d6 of healing. So, look at you being a team player. Um, you get third level spells, and this is good. So, we get, among other things, the haste spell. I haven't talked about haste very much on this build to the dismay of so many of you, especially those who comment on my Bladesinger builds and just cannot believe that I would not take haste as a Bladesinger. And I cannot believe that they think it's better than other concentration options. But anyway, that's an argument for a different time. Um, haste is really good. It's got a lot of great benefits and it's something that artificers have access to. So, it gives you um, extra movement speed, which is wasted on us because we're mounted. Um, it gives you a plus two to your armor class. Super fantastic. And it lets you make one extra weapon attack per turn when you take the attack action. So now we're getting four attacks per turn, right? We already had two with our main hand, now we get three, plus our bonus action attack. Um, so four lance attacks. There's a couple of drawbacks. Um, bummer number one is that it takes an action to cast, so it just delays you know, us getting into combat. It's worth it if the combat's gonna last more than a couple of rounds, but still. Um, again, like I said, it requires concentration, and bummer number two, if we lose concentration when the spell ends, um, we spend a whole turn not moving and not taking any actions. Now fortunately, we're mounted and our mount can still move. So he can get us out of danger. He, it, she can get us out of danger, which is nice, but we, we lose a turn of not being able to take any actions, which is too bad. Still, very strong spell and definitely worth using your concentration for. Um, at level 11, we are an Artificer 10. And level 10 Artificer is really great for us um, for a number of razones. It's all about uh, the infusions. So our enhanced weapon goes to a plus two to hit and damage at level 10. Fabulous. Um, not the radiant weapon, oddly, which feels like an oversight to me. But anyway, um, our enhanced defense goes to a plus two to your armor class instead of plus one, which is great. And we get an additional infusion, so now we now we can have four things infused. Um, and we finally get to craft magic items that I actually like. So I haven't talked about this very much, but you can replicate a magic item as one of your infusions, and, and we get a list of, of potential magic items that we can create. Up until now, they've mostly been kind of utility-type magic items, which are still worthy of you know, paying attention to. But here, um, I am going to recommend that we create for ourselves a headband of intellect, which gives our intellect, well, which makes our intellect score a 19. 
Um, so we get a plus four bonus to our intellect now, which is great for, you know, all of the things that I've talked about. Um, your companion is going to hit more frequently if they're actually ever making attacks. Your steel defender, that is. We get more arcane jolts, more flashes of genius. Um, our spells are more potent, right? Um, and it makes the blind from our radiant weapon harder to resist, things like that. So, you know, if none of that interests you, go ahead and create um, <clears throat> a cloak of protection for yourself, which will bump your armor class by one. That's great. Um, but I mean, if you're, you know, if you're going more tanky and less damagey with this build, then you'd probably have a shield. You'd probably be using a like a long sword instead of lances, so that you could stay within range of your enemies a little better and sort of draw their attention away from your friends. You'd have a repulsion pulsion shield infusion on your shield. Um, it's it's a it's a different build, but it's definitely viable if that's the way that you want to play this character. Um, you also do get the magic item adept feature here, which lets you attune up to four magic items at once uh, instead of the normal three, and it makes it easier for you to craft magic items if your DM is into that sort of thing. Um, at level 12, Artificer 11, you get a spell storing item. Um, this is really cool and potentially really strong. So you, you create this item and then you can store either a first or a second level Artificer spell in it. There are some requirements. The spell has to take an action to cast. It has to be, again, a first or second level Artificer spell only. So even if you multi-classed, you couldn't, you know, if it's not on the Artificer spell list, it doesn't apply. Um, and then you or someone else that you give this item to can cast that spell from the item up to eight times a day. It's twice your intelligence modifier, which is now a plus four because we got that headband of intellect, right? There's a few good options here. Um, I like Blur that uh, you can give it to a friend who, who has concentration available to them, right? Because it's a concentration spell, and then when they cast it on themselves or somebody else, um, it gives enemies disadvantage when they try to hit them, um, which is great. Cure Wounds is a fantastic option, um, just for some nice in-between you know, in combat, especially heals. Um, here's the one that I'm most strongly gonna recommend enlarge or reduce so um, this is this is fantastic you could give it to somebody who again who has a concentration slot available to them so like barbarians it won't work they can't concentrate on spells other casters are probably going to be using concentration right but if there's someone in your party who can cast this it, it's great for for a couple of reasons you could either have them cast it on, you know, whether themselves or somebody else in the party to give an extra d4 of damage to their weapon attacks because they're enlarged. Um, do not have them cast it on you, however, because that will make you go from small to medium and now you're not going to be able to ride your mount because your mount's only medium size, so keep that in mind. Um, but they could also use it offensively to shrink an enemy and reduce the enemy's weapon damage by 1d4, which is cool. Um, my favorite thing to do with this would be to have them cast it on your mount. 
Um, so if you have a companion that's willing to do this and to spend an action to cast enlarge on your mount, you can still mount it if your mount jumps up to a large size. It's not going to work if you're indoors probably, but otherwise, if it's large, you can still ride on it even if you're small. And the idea, <clears throat> sorry, the image of that is just even more hilarious in my opinion. Um, but that's going to give you some nice benefits in a moment. So let's talk about that. At level 13, um, you're an Artificer 12 and you get another ability score increase or a feat. And at this point, I think I probably would take the Mounted Combatant feat. So Mounted Combatant gives you a couple of things. Um, it lets you, when, when enemies make an attack on your mount, it lets you force that attack to be made against you instead. And what's super cool about that is your Steel Defender, right, can, as a reaction, impose disadvantage on an enemy that's making an attack against someone else. So an enemy runs up, they go to attack the Steel Defender, right? You force it to attack you instead, Steel Defender makes it so that that attack is made at disadvantage. Um, super cool, great synergy. It allows you to protect your mount more and also have enemies attack you with disadvantage. So win-win. The Mounted Combatant also lets you, I think I mentioned this before, make attacks against enemies smaller than your mount, so medium creatures or smaller, right? If someone has an enlarged spell on your mount, you get to make those, sorry, you get to make those attacks with advantage. So if your mount is large and you have the mounted combatant feet, you can um, make attacks with advantage. So again, if you have somebody that can use your spell storing item um, and cast enlarge on your mount and concentrate on that, uh, and you have the mounted combatant feet, then all of your attacks are made with advantage, and that's going to be a big bump to our damage per round. So anyway, you know, something cool. I'm not going to assume for our damage reports that you're actually doing that because I just don't know if you're going to have somebody in your party that has a concentration slot available and that is willing and able to to do that and even that you'll necessarily be in a place where you can ride a large mount and not be banging your head against the ceiling or whatever. But in some situations it would be really cool and fun and awesome and hilarious. Um, damage report at level 13. Let's see, you get uh, against an enemy that has a 10 armor class, you're doing 53 damage per round, and against an enemy with a 17 armor class, it's 44 damage per round. Again, those numbers go up if you are making attacks from, with advantage because you're on a large mount, and or if your mount is acting independently and able to make attacks on its turn and things like that. But that's sort of a baseline of what you can expect to do at this level. At level 14, you are an Artificer 13, and we get fourth level Artificer spells. Among other things, we get the really cool and very artificery spell summon construct. Um, so you essentially summon a golem, basically, uh, and it's made of metal, stone, or clay and they each have their own neat little features, two of which are going to add some damage. Anyway, they obey your verbal commands, and it doesn't require a bonus action or an action by you, like the other summon spells from Tasha's, all very good and very strong. 
Um, and it can, when you verbally command it to do so, make uh, two attacks on its turn. Um, it is your spell modifier to hit. Hooray for Tasha's, right? At this level, that is, what, five plus four, so plus nine to hit, not bad. Um, hooray, headband of intellect. And it does a d8 plus eight uh, damage each attack. So two attacks, two d8 plus 16, that's a lot of damage. In fact, it's better than haste. It requires concentration. It's generally better than haste um, because even though we have a, a slightly higher plus to hit, they do so much more damage on those two attacks compared to our one um, attack that we get from haste that you're just better off going summon construct outside of very high enemy armor classes. I'm talking like I think 27, 28, 29. I didn't crunch the numbers, but I know that it's higher than 25. So anyway, um, I would use that for concentration when you have fourth level spots slots available. Um, level 15. You are an Artificer 14 and you get the Magic Item Savant feature. You can attune up to five Magic Items now and you get a fifth Infusion just in time. Um, so we get access to even better and more powerful um, replicable items to use for our Infusions here. There's lots of good ones to choose from. I'm going to recommend um, the Amulet of Health which, like the Amulet of Intellect, bumps our constitution now to 19. Um, so now we get a plus four to our constitution modifier, which of course is gonna give us a bunch more hit points, 30 more hit points at this level, um, <clears throat> plus um, really give a nice bump to our concentration and, sorry, constitution and thereby concentration saves. Um, all very welcome things. At level 16, we are in Artificer 15, um, and we get the Improved Defender feature, which is a nice little bump. It, it lets your Arcane Jolt do 4d6 instead of 2d6, and remember, we can cast that four times per day now, um, or use that four times per day, or I should say it does 4d6 damage or 4d6 healing, whatever, however you want to use that. Um, your Steel Defender gets a plus two bump to their armor class, which is great. Of course, you're, you should hopefully be forcing attacks to be made against you all the time because your armor class is better and you have more hit points. Um, but, uh, you know what? One thing I forgot to mention about Mounted Combatant feat, sorry, is it also essentially gives your mount evasion. So if they make a dexterity saving throw against like a spell or area effect type thing, essentially, if they fail their saving throw, they still take only half damage. If they make their saving throw, they take no damage. So it works like evasion. That's really nice. Add some tankiness to your steel defender. Sorry for that, uh, that detour. Um, anyway, again, with the improved defender feature, um, if your Steel Defender uses their deflect attack, that reaction that they get to impose disadvantage, um, the, the attacker takes automatically, without any roll or anything, 1d4 plus your intelligence modifier, so 4. So 1d4 plus 4 damage, period. Um, that's a nice little bump, 6.5 on average, and I'm just going to assume that from this point on, 
you're going to get that damage every time. And, and maybe that means you don't run away quite as far from your enemies. Um, so you let them get within range and make an attack against you because even if they target the steel defender, you can force it to be against you. They're going to use their reaction to make that have disadvantage and also jolt them with a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of extra damage. So super cool. Um, we get another fourth level spell slot here as well, which makes it a little more realistic to assume that we'll have that summon construct up a lot of the time, maybe most of the time, depending on how many combats you usually have between your long rests. At level 17, um, Artificer 16, you get a feat or an ability score increase, and I don't have a real strong recommendation here, to be honest with you. Savage Attacker? Mm, tough for more hit points. Um, maybe even Fighting Initiate to give yourself a plus one to your AC. You know, the reality is you could you could multi-class here, go back to Fighter and take Fighter 2 for... Um, for uh, action surge, giving you some nice on-demand burst damage. Um, you know, I would say take a look and decide what you think fits your build the best. Um, but our final damage report <clears throat> against an enemy with an, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, you're going to do 70 damage per round on average, and against an enemy with an 18 armor class, 56 on average. Um, again, those go up if you have an enlarged mount, um, it goes up if your mount is making attacks, right? All of these things that I'm not assuming. So not bad, not amazing. Really at the end of the day, you are, you know, you're doing pretty well. You're competitive with <clears throat> kind of the bottom third, essentially of, you know, other builds that I've done. And it's really cool, and it's really fun, and you get to ride your mech into battle in D&D. So, final thoughts. I don't have a lot more to add. Um, you know, if you have always wanted to be a furiously small creature riding a medium-sized mount into battle and dual-wielding D12 weapons from... Uh, from range, sorry, from with you know with reach, and charging into battle, in and out, strafing, you know, circling your opponents, attacking them from the flank. Um, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun, and cool and funny, even in my opinion, and um, powerful. And uh, yeah, I hope that you guys enjoy it. Again, definitely options here to to make it tankier. Um, if you wanted to, I would say go ahead and um, take those multi-class levels into Cavalier a little earlier on. Use a shield, probably use a sword or an axe or a warhammer or something like that um, so that you're in there kind of imposing disadvantage on your enemies if they attack anybody other than you. And then you can still use that steel defender to impose disadvantage if they if they target you as well. Um, which is potentially really cool and going to make it really difficult for your enemies to do a lot of damage. So anyway, lots of options with this one and uh, cool and fun. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. That's it for the episode today. So thank you so much for watching. Um, please do like and subscribe and share. Um, I'm really happy with all the growth that we've had lately and it's been a lot of fun. 
Um, don't forget to check out our subreddit and continue the conversation there and pose questions to me and or to each other and you know looking for feedback on specific builds and things it's starting to become a cool little community which i love um, also find me on facebook or twitter dnd optimized and um, as always if you guys have a build that you'd really like to see me do an episode on let me know give me as much detail as you can and i will do my best to optimize it. I love you guys. You're awesome. Thank you and have a fantastic day.